and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 11th through Saturday the 13th feature guest conductor Jakob Prosha and soprano Joelle Harvey. The program includes music by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Ballad in A minor, the chamber orchestra version of Samuel Barber's Knoxville, Summer of 1915, and Dvorak's Symphony No. 6. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Samuel Barber's Knoxville, Summer of 1915, a work lasting about 14 minutes. Samuel Barber grew up in a house filled with music. Practicing piano was as important as playing ball, song recitals were a favorite evening entertainment, and the names of composers and performers were dropped during dinner table conversation. Barber's parents were not surprised when their son began playing the piano when he was six years old and composing music at seven. And they did not argue when at the age of nine he told them he intended to be a composer. Quote, don't ask me to try to forget this unpleasant thing and go and play football, he warned them. Sam's Aunt Louise was internationally known as Louise Homer, the great American contralto, and her husband, Sidney, was a highly regarded composer of songs. Shortly after Barber left the safety and comfort of his family home, he found success and encouragement in the greater music world. He was only 23 when the Philadelphia Orchestra gave the world premiere of his first orchestral score, the Overture to the School for Scandal, and soon his compositions were performed by many of the most celebrated figures of the day. Sometime early in 1947, when Barber was a world-famous composer, he looked around him and recognized, perhaps for the first time, the gradual and inevitable disintegration of his family. His father's health was rapidly deteriorating, his mother was not holding up well under the stress, and his Aunt Louise was seriously ill. We have been through some difficult times, he wrote to Uncle Sidney that year, and included with that letter a copy of a piece for soprano and orchestra that he had just finished. The text by James Agee had touched him deeply. It reminded me so much of summer evenings in West Chester, now very far away, and all of you are in it. Knoxville summer of 1915 is that family portrait, and despite the details of our disparate lives, we are all in it. Barber had read Agee's text in an anthology of writings from the Partisan Review and was immediately flooded with thoughts of his family and memories of his own youth. This prose poem particularly struck me, he recalled, because the summer evening he describes in his native southern town reminded me so much of similar evenings when I was a child at home. I found out after setting this that Mr. Ag and I are the same age, and the year he described was 1915 when we were both five. You see, it expresses a child's feeling of loneliness, wonder, and lack of identity in that marginal world between twilight and sleep. Barber had once before set Agee's words to music in the song, Sure on This Shining Night, and he treasured Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, Agee's book on southern sharecroppers. But the two men had never met. Shortly after Barber sent Knoxville off to Sidney Homer, he arranged a meeting with the writer, and they subsequently became close friends. Barber quickly realized why he had felt so close to Agee before they even met, for their lives were filled with odd coincidences. 
We both had backyards where our families used to lie in the long summer evenings. We each had an aunt who was a musician. I remember well my parents sitting on the porch, talking quietly as they rocked, and there was a trolley car with straw seats and a clanging bell called Dinky that traveled up and down the main street. A.G.'s poem was vivid and moved me deeply, and my musical response that summer of 1947 was immediate and intense. I think I must have composed Knoxville within a few days. Neither Barber nor A.G. could attend the premiere. The poet was recovering from an appendectomy. When he heard Knoxville later, he was delighted to find that the music was self-sufficient, and the composer was working at the American Academy in Rome, he sent word that he wanted the text printed in the program book, but not in tiny italics, which they always do, but so that people can follow the words. Knoxville is a snapshot of a time long gone. Barber's score is redolent of sounds and images now nearly forgotten. The clanging streetcar bell, the hueless amber of early moving pictures, and it evokes a time when people observed the world from their porches, unafraid of terrorists and street gangs, and the quiet of night was disturbed only by the singing of locusts. Barber's music is unhurried. This is the gracious tempo of life in 1915, the pace of people walking hand in hand, the easy rhythm of the rocking chair. With simple, sometimes soaring lyricism, Barber conveys a heartbreaking nostalgia for people and places and carefree moments that have slipped away. But even as young boys, both Barber and A.G. wanted to experience life beyond their backyards and Knoxville is suffused with this longing as well as a sense of the enormity of the world around them. And here is A.G.'s poem itself. We are talking now of summer evenings in Knoxville, Tennessee, in the time that I lived there so successfully disguised to myself as a child. It has become that time of evening when people sit on their porches, rocking gently and talking gently, and watching the street and the standing up into their sphere of possession of the trees, of birds, hung havens, hangars. People go by, things go by, a horse drawing a buggy, breaking his hollow iron music on the asphalt, a loud auto, a quiet auto. People in pairs, not in a hurry, scuffling, switching their weight of Estival body, talking casually, the taste hovering over them of vanilla, strawberry, pasteboard, and starched milk, the image upon them of lovers and horsemen squared with clowns in hueless amber, a streetcar raising its iron moan, stopping, belling, and starting, stertorous, rousing and rising again in its iron-increasing moan, and swimming its gold windows and straw seats on past and past and past, the bleak spark crackling and cursing above it like a small malignant spirit set to dog its tracks. The iron wine rises on rising speed, still risen, faints, halts. The faint stinging bell rises again, still fainter, fainting, lifting, lifts, faints, foregone, forgotten. Now is the night one blue dew, now is the night one blue dew my father has drained, he has coiled the hose, low on the length of lawns a frailing of fire who breathes, parents on porches rock and rock, from damp strings morning glories hang their ancient faces, 
the dry and exalted noise of the locusts from all the air at once enchants my eardrums. On the rough, wet grass of the backyard, my father and mother have spread quilts. We all lie there, my mother, my father, my uncle, my aunt, and I too am lying there. They are not talking much, and the talk is quiet, of nothing in particular, of nothing at all in particular, of nothing at all. The stars are wide and alive. They seem each like a smile of great sweetness, and they seem very clear. All my people are larger bodies than mine, with voices gentle and meaningless, like the voices of sleeping birds. One is an artist. He is living at home. One is a musician. She is living at home. One is my mother, who is good to me. One is my father, who is good to me. By some chance, here they are, all of this earth, and who shall ever tell the sorrow of being on this earth, lying on quilts, on the grass, in a summer evening, among the sounds of the night? May God bless my people, my uncle, my aunt, my mother, my good father. Oh, remember them kindly in their time of trouble and in the hour of their taking away. After a little, I am taken in and put to bed. Sleep, soft smiling, draws me unto her, and those receive me who quietly treat me as one familiar and well-beloved in that home, but will not, oh, will not, not now, not ever, but will not ever tell me who I am. James Agee's poem, Knoxville, Summer of 1915, and program notes by Philip Husher on Samuel Barber's setting of Agee's poem. And now on to program notes by guest annotator Jan Swafford on Antonine Vorjak's Symphony No. 6, a work lasting about 41 minutes. Antonine Dvorak has had a curiously ambiguous reputation. From his time to the present, he has been about as popular with listeners as it is possible to be. Meanwhile, critics from his time onward were skeptical. To many, Dvorak appeared too narrowly nationalistic, too naive, too conventional, too pretty, too popular, too much fun to be really seriously good. He was not profound. He did not stand in the great line of historical evolution. In the slow movement of the New World Symphony, he committed the misdemeanor of writing in a symphony, no less, a hit tune. In the last decades, Dvorak's critical reception has ascended roughly to the degree that conceptions like profound and historical evolution have descended. Perhaps there's a take on him that transcends the romantic shibboleths of the past or those of the present age that worship hit tunes. As should be evident, Dvorak is not as simple, naive, direct, and so forth as he appears. He raises issues. As with many artists of the highest rank, as soon as generalizations about him are attempted, they tend to fall apart. Perhaps one definition of genius is just that quality. With this person, everything is yes and no. The ambiguity begins with Dvorak's life story, which on the surface is a rags-to-riches saga. He was born, the eldest of nine children, in the Bohemian village of Nelohovesish, his father a butcher and innkeeper. That part of the myth is true. He came from the vicinity of nowhere and from nobody. 
The boy spent most of his youth as an apprentice butcher with an inexplicable yen for music. He started studying on his own and finally convinced his father to let him take up music as a trade. The Prague Organ School made Dvorak a professional. He spent the early part of his career performing in a dance band, playing viola in orchestras, and trying to compose. It was a time, he later wrote, of hard study, occasional composing, much revision, a great deal of thinking, and very little eating. Over the years, he wrote stacks of music and threw most of it out. He studied only with God, with the birds, and the trees, and myself. He was in his forties when all of it, the poverty, the struggle to raise himself by his bootstraps, paid off. In 1873-74, Dvorak wrote the third and fourth symphonies with surging confidence and skill. In 1874, he sent 15 pieces to the Austrian State Stipendium competition, which awarded funding to indigent artists living in the Austrian Empire. In 1875, and for three years after, Dvorak won the prize. In those years, he was red hot. He composed the Fifth Symphony in six weeks, the opera Wanda in three months, the E major serenade for orchestra, and a number of other pieces. The leading judge for the state competition was Johannes Brahms. In a letter of November 1877, leading music critic and Brahms' friend, Eduard Hanslick, wrote Dvorak and suggested the sympathy of an artist as important, as famous as Brahms, should not only be pleasant, but also useful to you, and I think you should write to him. Dvorak did as ordered. He found Brahms already an enthusiast for his talent and supremely able to make things happen. Immediately, Brahms sold his publisher, Shimrock, on Dvorak. In turn, Dvorak suggested to Dvorak that he do as Brahms had done, write some nationalistic dances. Dvorak perused Brahms' famous Hungarian dances and composed his own Slavonic dances. As the Hungarians had done for Brahms, the Slavonics did for Dvorak. They flew off the shelves and took their composer's name around the world. Occasionally, Brahms would groan about Dvorak's sloppy voice-leading and other technical sins, but more often Brahms voiced a kind of astonished pleasure. He raved to Shimrock that the prize-winning Moravian duets are merry, fresh, piquant, pretty, of two string quartets, the best that a musician must have, Dvorak has, of the wind serenade, a more lovely, refreshing impression of real, rich, and charming creative talent you can't easily find. As is often noted, the things that most dazzled Brahms about Dvorak were the qualities in which Brahms felt himself deficient, the freshness of the Czech-accented voice, the sense of effortlessness, the lack of self-consciousness, the unpretentious charm. Dvorak's foundation in his native Czech music is only half the story, then. As a composer of large pieces, he was firmly in the Austro-German symphonic tradition, when Dvorak reached his maturity with the Fifth Symphony, part of what made it possible was getting an infatuation with Wagner out of his system and striking out on his own. Now he'd gotten Brahms into his system. The models of Brahms and Wagner would mingle creatively in his work for the rest of his life. 
Among the fruits of that were the extraordinary last symphonies, the sixth with its echoes of Brahms and Beethoven, the seventh his most somber and tragic, that is to say, Brahmsian, the rustic and irresistible eighth, and the New World, one of the most beloved of all symphonies. His Symphony No. 6 in D major, Opus 60, was composed for Hans Richter and the Vienna Philharmonic after the orchestra's successful airing in 1879 of Dvorak's Third Slavonic Rhapsody. It was intended for a premiere in 1880, but the orchestra rebelled at doing a Czech work two years in a row, not the only time Dvorak experienced this kind of treatment in Vienna. The symphony finally had its premiere in Prague. The Vienna Philharmonic never played it until 1943. Elsewhere, the sixth proved one of Dvorak's first international successes among his large works. The symphony itself shows the complexity of the integration of Czech national music and German models. From the simplest perspective, the sixth is a testament to the German side of his roots and to his champion Brahms in particular. Among other things, starting with its key, in the sixth there are echoes of the mood and material of Brahms' second symphony. All four movements of the sixth are expansive. The first establishes a tone both magisterial and tuneful, though later in the movement and throughout the symphony there will be stern and declamatory moments. There has been a long-going debate about the material in the piece. Some have called the robust D major opening theme a Czech folk song, but any German listener of the time would have heard that it echoes a familiar German tune, the Großvaterdance, Grandfather's Dance, that Robert Schumann wielded memorably in his piano works Papillon and Carnival. That theme is put through familiar paces in sonata form, changing character from grand to stern. There is the usual gently contrasting second theme. The development is entirely Germanic, taking mainly the first theme in increasingly dramatic directions before a resplendent recapitulation. The second movement, a rondo, A, B, A, C, A, B, A, with extensive variations in the repeats of the material, has another clear influence, the slow movement of Beethoven's Ninth. The tone is less inward than the model in Beethoven, the main theme yearningly lyrical, the intervening sections ranging from quiet to aggressive. At times, Dvorak's treatment of his main theme recalls Brahms' surging cello melodies. It is with the third movement that his nationalism takes center stage. It is a scherzo in the style of a furiant, a driving Czech dance that leaps between a two-beat and three-beat articulation. Brilliant, intense, and a quite new voice for a symphonic scherzo, it was the hit of the symphony from the beginning. At the premiere in Prague, it was encored. The quiet scherzo takes motifs from the same theme in a gentle direction. It is perhaps the finale that most overtly recalls Brahms' second, beginning with a quietly flowing and expansive Brahmsian theme. Again, we are in orthodox sonata form, exposition, development, recapitulation, coda, with a second theme contrasting, but in this case more vigorous in rhythm. Dvorak skips the usual repeat of the exposition and goes right into a boisterous and dramatic development. 
after a straightforward recapitulation, we arrive at a coda of mounting excitement dominated by peeling brass. The myth of Dvorak paints him as an ingenious, folksy composer, but he was a great deal more than that. The value of his music is not in qualities the 19th century most admired, the heroism of Beethoven, the magical quality of Mozart, the exalted and ponderous craftsmanship of Brahms. Perhaps the depth of Dvorak, if we listen to him closely, is partly in the way he stretches beyond the categories in which both his critics and admirers have tried to contain him. That again, may be a handy definition of genius. Program notes by guest annotator Jan Swafford on Dvorak's Symphony No. 6. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.